This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Great to be together. Got a lot to do. Hey, in a few moments, we'll get another update, and I'm so happy about this. How Shirtliff is a he's run he's he's a um i'd say he's an educator i guess he's an activist too but for many years he's run the camp constitution and he's run a very active website website camp constitution is a one-week camp and his website is campconstitution.net and there's a lot more there than just uh the camp but the camp is a one-week camp where you go and learn about the constitution kids and he loves doing it he's done it for years he's an amazing guy but he also about five or six years ago realized that it looked like um the city of boston was letting every other group uh, show a flag, run a flag up over City Hall. And he wanted to run a Christian flag up, one that was from our uh, historical tradition. And they wouldn't let him. So he went to court and he got some people together, the volunteers, uh, uh, one of these pro bono groups. And they went out and they went ahead and they won in court five years later. One of the things that happens when you win like that is you get your uh, damages. And so uh, he has some news on the damages uh, that Boston City had to pay out to this pro bono uh, law firm, Liberty Council, it's called. Really cool. Really cool story. Uh, really good guy. And uh, I wonder, I love talking to him. So we're going to talk to him in a few minutes about that and the Constitution. And um, we'll talk with John Schlafly, too, on his weekly column. But that brings me to what you uh, what you need to know today. Today's wink is about what you need to know is about how quickly the left and the media will change tax. And you don't even notice it if I don't point it out, if you're not uh, able to see it. So for about 35 or 40 years, the the strategy, not the tactic, the strategy of the left was many things that they could not get the people to adopt, they would go through the courts to do. In other words, if I can be cynical, it was easier to get one or or five judges to support something, one if it was a trial court and five, say, if it was a pellet or something, to support something than it was to get a million five, right? One million or one million five. If you were going to try to persuade the people of your state and there were a million people there, it's hard to persuade 500,000 to your position sometimes on some issues. Uh, You know, and when I mean 500,000, I mean persuading you to elect people to your state legislature who will do X. Pick a topic and the left decided they couldn't win it through our traditional system in America of persuading the people to elect people to be the representative government who would then change the laws in the direction you wanted or the policies. Uh, that's how we've had it set up. That's how our founders set it up. And they structured things in the country that allowed each state to have a lot of autonomy on how they set up what happened in their state within a range. And then that limited the power of the, the federal government. OK, so that's the, the left decided to do that. Pick a topic and you can see what I mean. They, they did abortion through the courts. Right. A decision, a, a right to privacy, because at the time, 1970s, you couldn't have passed a law that allowed abortion as a right. No way. Certainly not a right. They did um, uh, many of the changes to the gender laws and expansions of discrimination. Again, things that you might have wanted to pass, uh, some of them, but they were, uh, you know, pretty expansive. Maybe not the best example, but the best example is uh, the definition of marriage, which the American people uh, were clearly, as, as recently as 2004, was on the ballot in many states. The people didn't want to change the definition of marriage. But about 10 years later, Obergefell and the Supreme Court did it by uh, a you know, narrow majority. So they like to use the courts instead of having to persuade the people. That was a ta- that was a strategy. And the tactic was state courts, federal courts, et cetera. Now move to today where after 25 years, 
uh, conservatives and and by the way, not always totally conservative judges result in this, but conservatives generally had been making an argument that the courts should not be the king and and queen or the ruling oligarchs of the land. I remember the phrase a friend of mine used called them the black robed oligarchs that were ruling ruling America by fiat from the Supreme Court. Nobody intended that. The founders wanted a a, a system where the people where the people were uh, uh, the, the the government was structured and limited and the most the, the weakest by choice of the people, the weakest and the preference of the people at that time and the, the founding uh, fathers was the weakest of the branches at the federal level was the judici- judiciary. It didn't have a it didn't have a um, a way to enforce its laws. That's a famous line uh, from one of the one of the I think it was a ju- uh, president was it Jackson who said, you know, good, good idea. Nice ruling. Now, see, enforce it. There's no way to enforce it. There's no way they can control their budget. In fact, their budget's controlled by Congress and the president, etc. Over time, though, because it's a it's a target, it's a it's an anti people, anti we the people movement to have oligarchs have black robed oligarchs rule us. Anyway, that's the argument. Okay, so now we're down to today, and we have had, after 25 years, more conservative judges, especially at the highest court in the land, the Supreme Court. And so we have the Dobbs decision, right, which rolls back the faulty Roe v. Wade decision and Doe v. Bolton decision from 45 years ago, from 1973. And now the left and the media turns to, oh, no, we can't have our courts be powerful. We can't do this. I mean, the courts can't be in charge of anything. They're not supposed to be in charge. Now, here's the trick for conservatives, for people that love the Constitution. The left, in this case, is right. What you need to know is we do want to limit the power of the court. In other words, we want a Supreme Court that will relinquish its role as a dominant force, as a political uh, body that dominates. They have to relinquish that role at the same time as they get us back to balance. So if you saw the coverage, and it was all over the place for about a day or so, of the case that was before the Supreme Court, and I believe the title, I know that the title, the first name is Moore on it. Oh, it's Moore v. Harper. Moore v. Harper about North Carolina. And one of the aspects of, of state control is the so-called, the, the role in congressional district, right? Congressional district. So every 10 years, the census comes out. And when the census comes out, it tells you that your state of North Carolina has X more people or Y more people. They've moved in different places. And you see that on the census. And, the, and by the way, the census was in our Constitution, right? It was something that was in the Constitution because they wanted to know each 10-year period what this was. So this is what happens. And, there's, and, and then there is, they draw the maps for the congressional districts. So who draws the maps? Well, the state legislatures would have to get it drawn and signed by the governor. That's generally how it's been done in states. That's state by state. In some ways, you can sometimes have a commission that puts it together. That's so-called independent. It's never independent. It's made up of bureaucrats. It generally leans left. Anytime you hear that there's a commission in politics, you know it will lean left eventually. But that's how it goes. So Missouri can decide its way, how it wants to draw its maps. North Carolina can decide its way. You know, in the old days, you would sometimes have, say, eight representatives, eight congressmen, congressmen and congresswomen from Missouri, and they would just be all from the whole state. You didn't have to draw a map. You could say we want them to represent the whole state. That happened. And it still happens, by the way. It's not unconstitutional, obviously, in states that have just one congressman. I think Montana used to, and I think they have two now. They think they picked one up. Um, so that's the st- that's what I'm description, description, right? So what you need to know now is over the years and in places like New York, 
the Democrats engage in the same thing that you'll hear people talk about. It's called gerrymandering. Now, gerrymandering is a word that's been around for about a hundred, no, 150 years, I guess. And it was a, t- a term that came out of taking the name of a governor in Massachusetts, whose first name I forget, but his last name was Jerry, G-E-R-R-Y, Governor, oh, Elbridge, here it is, Elbridge Jerry. And he later was vice president of the United States, by the way. He was very prominent. You know, Massachusetts governor was a big, big deal. It was a big job back then because Massachusetts was such a big state. It still is a big deal, but it was really big then. So Governor Elbridge Jerry was the guy who was named. He was he was uh, in charge of the signing the bill that redistricted Massachusetts. Right. And so there was a. One of the districts was an incredibly convoluted district that went from the top of Massachusetts all the way across the bottom and then sprung out the bottom side. It looked like what? A salamander. Now, for those of you who don't know and aren't a kid that has ever played in the creek, a salamander, amphibian. I looked this up. An amphibian. I remember playing with them as kids. They're like little tiny, um, uh, little tiny lizards, tiny things. A salamander. So Jerry. Governor Jerry, salamander, gerrymander. Gerrymander is the word that is kind of a slur for how you draw the maps. But here's what you need to know. Someone has to draw the maps. So who do you prefer to draw the maps? Who do you think is better to draw the maps? Is it better for the elected representatives of your state, meaning state senators and state reps, whatever system you have? Sometimes it's unicameral. In uh, Nebraska, there's just one body. I think they call them senators. Draw the maps. Signed by the governor. So there's a fight. There's a political argument between the governor and the legislature to draw the maps. In other words, you have the ability to get close to the people to say, hey, wait a second. Don't draw Omaha in with Lincoln in a map. Those interests are too varied. Let them have two separate districts, whatever it may be. Right. And of course, it it does. It does uh, sort of denigrate to raw power. But in my state, for example, and I know it very well, uh, after the 2000 census, the maps were drawn by the two most powerful forces in the state, Dick Gephardt and Roy Blunt. Roy Blunt was a congressman from southwest Missouri at the time, and and Dick Gephardt was from the uh, up by St. Louis. And their staffs got together. And if you were the new congressman from, uh, I don't know, up in central Missouri or somewhere, you were out of luck, not out of luck, but you weren't going to be the guy that got to say how the map was. Those were the two power. So, of course, politics comes into play, but politics that's more accountable to we the people, I think, than the following. There has been a growing trend where, wait for it, black robed oligarchs in states, they redraw the maps as they prefer. They're the ones that get to say, we like this map or we don't like this map. Whereas if the maps were drawn and you hated them and say the whole the whole state hated them and say that after they were done drawing the maps in Missouri, everybody hated them. You know what you do? You'd make it a big deal and you'd vote some people out. You get new people in. You'd say, what are you doing? And instead, we have black robed oligarchs at the state level deciding the maps. So this case, Moore versus Harper is in North Carolina. And what happened was the legislature drew the maps signed by the governor. I think it was overridden the governor's veto, but it got through the system. I'm not sure about that one. And then the state courts redrew the maps. And so the, the legislature legislators went to the Supreme Court and said, hey, they're right now, that's what this case is. And said, hey, wait a second. We're the ones that get to do that. Not these black robed oligarchs, not these not these not these judges. What you need to know is now the left wants to support and wants you to support the idea that the state judges get to be the ones that decide why. It's easier to persuade or elect or influence the choice of 
seven or nine, nine people at the state court level than it is to have to go out and persuade all of the state reps and all of the state senators and all those people. And more often than not, in a state like North Carolina, the legislature is more conservative than the judges. So if you like conservatives, you say, well, if you, I mean, if you don't like conservatives, say, get it out of that place. So what you need to know in this case is very important is you're watching the, back to my, my thesis, which I used last week, I think so well. One side abides by rules, principles, ethics. That would be so-called conservatives. That would also be Republicans to a certain extent. You can say they don't always do it, but in general, they're rule abiders. The left is all their power abiders. They abide by power. They, they will say principles matter. They might, and some of them may think it does. But ultimately, if you have to complain in the same article, in the same articles, same coverage, You'll hear the media and the left complain. They'll say the U.S. Supreme Court has too much power when judges get to decide what states are doing, because we think that in the states, judges should be the ones that decide and we shouldn't let the people do it. You see the trick? You see the trick? Power abides or rules abide. Law abides. If you're a law abider, you say, wait a second, the system's got to be set up and I'm going to have to live with a system that allows California to gerrymander to the extreme advantage of the Democrats. I'm going to have to live with that because the legislature in that state is so liberal, so Democrat. That's going to be a bummer, but I'd rather have that happen and people say, okay, that's a state either I like or don't like, as opposed to let me have judges strike it down and let five or seven or nine judges decide. And on the other side, you have power abiders who say, hey, if the argument stands now that we think judges are great on Roe v. Wade and Obergefell, but now we have to criticize judges for being too intrusive and activist, we'll do it. Even if in the same breath we have to say, yeah, but down there we like the judges to do it. You see the point? What you need to know is this battle is, is about elections ostensibly, but it's really about structure of our government system and who do you trust. And fundamentally, the, the, the left and too many elites don't trust the people. And frankly, neither did the founders, which is why you don't have a democracy run rampant. You have representative democracy. You have re Republican form, a Republican de democracy, a, a, a republic which is democratic at its heart, but not uh, uh, ruled by the mob. It's an important battle. It's a very important battle worth watching. More v. Harper. Uh, it, the decision will come down in months now. The arguments were just in the court, so you heard a brief glance of it. But watch the watch the watch the uh, the uh, the flip flop. I'm I'm against judges at the Supreme Court. They're they're too powerful, meaning they're too conservative now. But uh, at the state level, I sure would like some judges to uh, find, uh, for example, a uh, right to privacy in a state constitution. We need some of that because we can't get that passed in the legislature. That's coming next, by the way, in some states. All right, we got to run. We got to run. We'll come back and we will talk with Hal Shirtliff about the Constitution. CampConstitution.net is his website and John Schlafly. And we'll take a break. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. I wish I had the uh, old mic on uh, just now. I was off the, off the air talking with our next guest, Hal Shirtliff, about uh, all kinds of things, uh, uh, politics, religion, everything you're not supposed to talk about. And uh, so welcome back, Hal. How are you? 
Oh, great. Thanks for having me back. Really appreciate it. Well, I wanted to have you back because you sent out a message. I, I, I don't even know. Was it actually Thanksgiving? No, it was a couple a couple days after Thanksgiving, I think, right? And it was, uh, but it was the, the follow-on to your uh, your effort, Shirtleff versus the city of Boston, where you said, wait a second, if you're flying every single flag in the history of the world, uh, all mm. kinds of left-wing things, why can't, uh, why can't we uh, uh, fly our own flag? They said no, went all the way to the Supreme Court and won. Well, the news, the interesting news, tell us about it. What happened next? Well, we actually, it, it took five years, but uh, thanks to Liberty Council, we got our case in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. And uh, May 2nd, I believe it was, or May 3rd, they ruled 9-0 in our favor. We actually had a flag-raising ceremony in August. It was the last time the city will allow any third-party organizations to fly flags as a result of our this case. But they were basing, their, they allowed us to do it based on their old, uh, their old arrangements, which they, uh, you know, they violated right but but the uh, but liberty council got paid too right this is i mean they, the extraordinary thing yes. about this is this is right the, uh, well the, the, uh, now liberty council does pro bono work for right. uh, christian organizations and individuals and uh, of course they take a chance because if they lose they don't get a penny right so uh, they settled with a city uh, 2.125 million dollars uh, that's a nice uh, no they earned every penny they made lots of trips from Florida to Boston and then they have a DC office uh, arguing cases and preparing uh, preparing all kinds of briefs and uh, and it well in fact what happened was they actually got the check uh, I guess it was sometime early last week and they had a picture of the check on their on their news release so I what you got was yeah. uh, simply uh, forwarded their news release well uh, from I, hate our to camp see, I hate to see I hate to see government spending lots of money especially paying lawyers but this one feels okay but it is i'm looking at the image right now michelle Wu, of course is the mayor of boston and there it is a check and the pay line is two million one hundred and twenty five thousand uh and zero dollars i mean zero over a hundred dollars i mean a uh, hundred you know that fraction dollars that's it's incredible to see made out to liberty council um Tell me that again, though. Explain it how they didn't learn their lesson and become value uh, or uh, discriminate less discriminatory. They shut it down. Is that what you said? Yes. Yeah, so no, they they started the policy back, I think, in '08 or somewhere like that, maybe '07, where a third party they said community or I'm paraphrasing from their website, but they want uh, you know to serve the diverse community and they want to be able to uh, encourage other uh, the, the the area groups in the Greater Boston to uh, to have events. And so um, there's lots of groups. There are some groups, you know, like, for example, that might be Israeli American group that flies a Israeli flag. Right. There was an Italian-American group that flew that flies the Italian flag. There's a Portuguese group that would fl- fly the Portuguese flag. But then you have a communist Chinese group that flew the Chinese communist flag, a Cuban uh, communist group that would fly the Cuban communist flag, and of course the rainbow flags and um, the, the uh, transgender flags. But we simply wanted to fly the Christian flag, which is a very simple construct. It's a non-denominational flag, and the only thing, uh, the only religious symbol is it is a red cross a very important symbol of course the bloodstained cross of christ in the left hand side 
And they denied us based on what they said, a separation of church and state. They later changed it a little bit to unapproved government speech. So the fact that that flag, uh, any flag that's flying on that that third party pole, I would call it a public access flagpole, uh, was considered approved government speech. So they're in, in essence, they admitted that they uh, have no trouble with the communist flag. Uh, in fact, uh, one a week after they flew the communist flag of China, a local uh, anti-communist Ch- uh, Chinese American flew the Taiwanese flag. You know, I think he flew it for uh, one day, and that was that. So uh, you know, the city wasn't trying to say we approve of this, and you know, this is what we stand for. They had you had black nationalist flags and all kinds of other flags. So the city had no problem with those, but but. Um, I think they were looking at the lemon test, and the lemon test deals with that terrible decision back in the early yeah, 70s. They right, made a, right, whole, right. a whole lot of bad decisions. But it was dealing with a parochial school, I think, in Providence, Rhode Island, where some tax money, either from the city or the state, was going to the school. And uh, they, of course, ruled against that. And then they, people would turn around and look at this and say, oh, my goodness, we can't have people wearing crosses in public schools. We can't have people bring candy canes. You can't even say god bless you in a public school that was how the extreme lengths that they were taking it so the supreme court uh and thanks to this case and i think the joe kennedy coach joe kennedy case which i believe is washington state uh that predated us uh two years 2015 where he was praying on the 50 yard line uh the supreme court ruled six three in his uh his favor right but uh simply praying on a field Government property doesn't mean, and they use the same terminology, approved government speech. It was very interesting. And in his case, they cited our case because you know, they, they heard they, yeah. they decided their case about uh, about a month or so later. Uh, we're talking again with Hal uh, Shirtliff. Uh, Hal, um, I suppose I think it's right. Uh, this whole fight, um, not well, it wasn't just satisfying you, for you. I mean, it was satisfying for you because you stood up for the right thing. But also, um, you know, in your in your uh, work with the Camp Constitution, I mean, you love the Constitution, you love what's going on. So it was sort of, I guess, it was almost like a a, a rewarding exercise. I can't say. I imagine you rooted for it. You probably would have just rather had the flag. But then again, you kind of went out and did this, right? I mean, how, how does t- tell me about that and uh, and give me a little thumbnail on camp constitution and what's going on over there with that stuff well i have to say that god's hand was in this the whole time because it was never my attention and the, the attention of camp constitution to do this to get a federal case you know the old expression don't make a federal case out of it that was never our intention <laughs> but i'm so glad that we were able to when i got that email uh, the official email denying me and it said based on the separation of church and state i said i have to do something i said especially as uh, the director of constitution i would be uh, remiss of my duties as a teacher and the head of the uh, camp constitution if i didn't do anything if i just okay well what are you gonna do we'll we'll, we'll accept it and uh, liberty council uh t- took our case just about immediately from the time they heard it and uh, it was a five-year process so i like to think that we taught the country a really good lesson on the first amendment uh and lots of people probably read the first amendment for the first time because they actually think so many people actually think the term separation of church and state is in there and it's not it all it did was say that congress can establish a church and at the time it was ratified there were a number of states that had state churches not by the way that i'm in favor of a state church church. Um, but that first 
Amendment has got nothing to do with um, uh, separation of church and state. I do believe that governments at any level should not establish churches, but they should cooperate with churches. And we've been doing that since the beginning of our republic. You know, most people, a lot of people today will vote in the church. You know, pastors used Mm -hmm. to give uh, election day or uh, that Sunday before election day, they would give sermons uh, on election day. Not to say who to vote for, but what what things to look for in candidates. Uh, You know, you see our even if you you, you live near D.C., you see Christian symbolism all over the city. You don't have to look too hard for it. You see that in almost every major city. I say every major city and even small towns. You can see their religious history just in the statuary alone. Yeah, well, that's right, and I, and 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 uh, and that's right, and there's nothing wrong with that, nothing to be afraid of. I mean, I think that's absolutely I, not. I, I do, I do think it is uh, was a unique. Uh, I, I didn't, I guess, I didn't realize it was five years. It took you five years to get through it. I mean, almost, just about five years. Wow. But what's what we're seeing? You know, it seems like every week, and you know, I get these alerts. You know, uh, different uh, news alerts. And just the other day, there was a town. It was oh, it was Medina, Ohio, mm-hmm. and back in June they were they started flying a bunch of rainbow flags, and they took them down because of our case, and they were debating whether or not to allow any more third party flags. So they probably won't allow that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Plymouth, Massachusetts. Um, let's see where else. North Reading and Reading, Massachusetts. Uh, I think a town in uh, oh, a couple of towns in Michigan and Ohio and other places around the country have uh, discontinued flying third-party flags as a result of our case. So sometimes they do the, the right thing for the wrong reason, you yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, you know, when it comes to rainbow flags, you know, as a Christian, I don't think we should be uh, promoting a certain lifestyle that's not very healthy. I don't think it's proper. I think, In fact, I think it's a violation of many state constitutions where they talk about morality and piety are necessary virtues, right. and then to promote a lifestyle, uh, promotes a lifestyle that it's unhealthy and immoral. I think it's wrong, but you know. Uh, and, uh, but some of these towns and cities are not doing it for that reason. They just don't want any controversy, right. and so they're just. And I, you know, and I think that's probably the way it should be because let's face it, there's always going to be a flag that's going to offend somebody, right? Right, 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 you right, know? right, right. Uh, Hal Sherliff again. Uh, camp, CampConstitution.net is where you can go find out Camp Constitution's 2023 camp. It may sound like that's a long way off, but trust me. First of all, it'll be built. It'll be uh, seven months. Yeah, it's but. It'll Eight, be full up. And, uh, so if you go there uh, and check it out, it's campconstitution.net, July 16th through July 21st, and a lot more there, There, inclu- including, as I like to uh, refer to, because uh, I love it, and I loved uh, what he did. Sam Blumenfeld's, uh, Blumenfeld's archive is there, too, Hal. So, all right, we got to run, Hal. Hal all Schreiber, right, thanks for having me on. God bless. Thank you, Hal, and uh, God bless you. Fascinating okay. uh, fascinating effort by uh, Hal, excuse me, and his um Standing up for the Constitution, standing up for his rights, and ending up winning. And as he said, a five-year course on teaching folks about the Constitution. Pretty cool. All right. We will take a break, and we'll be right back. I'll put up on social media links to both the story uh, he's talking about. I'll try to get that check, too, the uh, multimillion-dollar check for the lawyers. I'll be right back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. And our next guest is Rachel Bovard, who's been on before and author, commentator. You see her all over the place. Um, But Rachel, before the number one question I have, I sent out your article, your opinion piece that ran in the New York Times. 
how did that happen? Does the New York Times run Rachel Bovard <laughs> stuff? I mean, serious, like you you have been so fearless in talking about a lot of key issues. I really would think that, you know, the New York Times is not um, I don't know. They're not they're not known on the opinion page for being particularly tolerant. Tell me how this came about. You're as surprised as I was. Um, reached out to me and asked me if I had you know any pitches for them on Trump running again. And, you know, if, I, they, if they wanted to hear any ideas that I had for pieces, I sent them a couple of outlines. They liked it and said, hey, send it to us. And to my surprise, they took it. Uh, and with only a few minor edits, um, you know, I wrote it knowing they would probably cut some parts and they did. But I was pretty pleased with the with the final product. So, hey, I guess every now and then, even the failing New York Times has to has to admit they're they're missing it if they don't include all voices. Well, I, and, and that I mean, in some ways, the, the, the scandal that everybody might even miss, it goes to, it went too fast. They chased off the op-ed. Um, remember, they chased off the op-ed editor. Um, Bennett is his last name. I forget his first name, unfortunately. But And it was largely because they published Tom Cotton. And and they didn't like what Tom Cotton was saying. And, and the answer should have been like, wait, you're the New York Times. You have enough confidence in your own uh, editorial viewpoint that you can have people that you don't like. And it really, and that guy lost his job because of that. And it became a real mess. And... Uh, so I kind of I'm encouraged in a way, as you say, to, that they would actually be sort of willing to do that. OK, so to the point, the uh, the column is what makes Trump different from DeSantis and other Republicans. Now, before we get to that, let's say this. I did a little segment yesterday. Um, Paul Ryan announced or gave, they gave an interview and he said, you know, uh, entitlement cuts are really are not uh, that toxic anymore with voters. And you're like, uh, OK, and that feels like the uh, uh, establishment Republicans sort of saying, you know, we had a, that interlude of about five years of Trumpism. Let's get back to our basics. I, it, I don't know what you think of that, but that it feels like that's what a lot of the other Republicans are. Yeah, there's been, I think, over the last four or five years, ever since Trump left office, this, this and even when he was in office, right, this attempt by establishment Washington Republicans to regress to the mean, to go back to before Trump, to pretend Trump never happened, to pretend that he never uh, produced this base of voters that cares more about the issues that Trump cared about, you know, which are working class jobs, the border, um, you know, aggressing uh, against this idea that other countries can treat us terribly in trade agreements. And that's okay with us. A reduction in foreign wars. These are the things that the voters now care about in the Republican Party. But you still have people in Washington that don't get it. They think the party should be run top down and the agenda should be driven top down and not bottom up. And I think that's what you're seeing from Paul Ryan. He is going after his own agenda and trying to paper it over uh, the base of the Republican Party. But that's not where the base is anymore. And sadly, if these people continue to run the party, they're going to run it right into irrelevance. Well, and, and we're talking again with Rachel Bovard. She is the uh, policy director at the Conservative Partnership Institute. Um, and as I mentioned, she writes a lot and, and is a commentator frequently, always uh, always thoughtful and interesting to me, Rachel. So thanks for that. Um, I, I did a, another segment the other day. I said that, you know, Phyllis Schlafly, the late Phyllis Schlafly back in the day, she said, uh, you know, oh, she was sick of getting the same old echoes. She said they take us down the path, the echoes of the past, and we lose. She said we need a choice, a real choice, so, you know, bold colors, all that stuff. And of course, that was when it was Goldwater she was referring to, but it became Ray I mean, it was really that that move went that way. Um, but back to this question of DeSantis and other Republicans, there is a m move and you sort of you do address this in your um, in your piece in The New York Times. There's a move by Republicans to say, well, you know, you get you get Trumpism without Trump's baggage. 
and DeSantis and others. And I, I that's kind of that to me, that's the fallacy here, because, A, I don't believe it. I think a lot of the people um, that are running, you know, uh, Mike Pompeo, Nikki Haley, they're not full Trumpism on a certain number of issues, including, by the way, including some of the negatives. I, I said the other day, uh, there were people visiting the White House, Van Jones, who I didn't like having at the White House, just like there are people having dinner in Mar-a-Lago in the last week that people didn't like. This is Trump's been doing this his whole life. He's standing up at the NAACP in the 1980s with Al Sharpton. And that to me seems insane. He's done it his whole life. But back to this uh, notion in your piece that somehow DeSantis or other Republicans are uh, are to me our Trump uh, ism, but without Trump, it doesn't doesn't pass muster. Yeah, you know, I think there's a danger, and you're seeing this again from sort of the same people, the Paul Ryan's of the world, you know, the David French's of the world, in attempting to move beyond Trump, not because they necessarily like or support what the other candidate stands for, but because they think they can use someone like DeSantis to purge the party of Trump. And to be clear, I think Ron DeSantis is great. I think everything he's done in Florida has been fantastic. Uh, but I think it's a mistake to say, well, he's he's going to be the vector by which we rid the party of Trumpism. That is not going to get him elected if that's the goal, right? right <laughs> like right. the the point I was trying to make in this piece even broader than that is the establishment figures of now aligning themselves Ron DeSantis are actually hurting Ron DeSantis. I don't think that Ron DeSantis is necessarily courting these people or seeking out their endorsement, but they are endorsing him. And that's going to make the base fundamentally distrust him because they distrust these establishment figures so much that they've become toxic. They've become almost toxic elements. And that's a, they don't have enough self-awareness to realize it. And by this, I mean everybody from National Review to the Wall Street Journal editorial board. You know, the base, the people who elected Trump distrust the system completely. And they see those people as integral to that system that has sold them out with the Republican Party for the last 20 years. There's an inherent trust of Trump because people view him as outside the system. They still view him as the only person that can walk in and th- you know throw down, upend the whole system. And until there's a candidate that wins their trust in that regard, I just don't see a viable path to the nomination that doesn't involve Trump. So this attempt to rid the party of him, I just think it's going to backfire. Is um, on the specific, so what, what do you think happened in 2022 then in november in terms of um the some of the places where it looked like i mean the, the one that i arizona i mean carrie lake was so dynamic it felt like that was I don't, I don't know arizona well enough so i should you know maybe uh you know profess that up front but it, it didn't it felt like on the on the main issues of of normal elections everything was going against the democrats and yet a, a number of places they succeeded I, do you think that was a reflection of uh of trumpism of reflection of the media what do, what do you think of that what do we what do you make of 2022 so i think it, it, was, a, it was a lot of factors actually you know there's been a lot of finger pointing and recriminations in washington about you know well trump didn't you know trump's endorsement hurt us candidate selection hurt us all these things well at the end of the day when you talk about trump trump doesn't control the republican party's campaign apparatus. He doesn't do the hiring. He doesn't decide where the money goes. That is squarely at the feet of the Republican leadership. Mitch McConnell, Kevin McCarthy, Ronna McDaniel, they control all of those elements. So I think there should be some self-reflection there, particularly when you have, you know, Mitch McConnell pulling money out of winnable Senate races in Arizona and New Hampshire and not looking back. And he controls, you know, all of the money in those Senate races. But I also think, you know, the Republican Party generally just didn't give people a reason to show up. 
right? They relied on pointing at the other guy and saying, well, he's really bad, vote for us. And that's just not enough anymore. You have to give people a reason to want to vote for you. And and the other guy being bad or, you know, inflation being high, those are valid, but they're not enough. What are you going to do for these voters? How are you going to change and help their everyday lives? We didn't vision cast for them. And you can't expect voters to turn out when that is the case. So I think there's a lot of factors um, that that go into it. But fundamentally, the Republican Party needs to to cohere around a vision uh, for the voter, not just pointing at the other guy. And we haven't been able to do that. Uh, We're talking again with uh, Rachel Bovard, who is uh, the policy director over at uh, CPI. And um, again, um, when you see she's writing or or hear her, she's speaking. uh, Take a listen. the, in the popular culture, Rachel, again, I know one of the things that you also write is um, over at the Federalist, uh, you're the tech columnist, so I see you write on tech a lot and on all those issues. In the popular culture, and by, the reason I shifted there a little bit was you, that, the, you know, the, the, now, just years, it's been, I mean, almost year to year, month to month, the, the, the number of people that are utilizing social media, whether it's Instagram or fa- Facebook, TikTok, whatever it is, it's just unbelievable how quickly it's happening. But in the popular culture, is... Trump does Trump have I mean, again, over the over the holiday, I think it was is it for Home Alone 2 where there's a a, a cameo of Trump? You you realize like Trump's been in the culture, (laughs) the popular culture for decades. And that had a great that had a great um, advantage, I think, was a great advantage to him going into 2016 in the popular culture. Are we stuck with these um, these negative tropes? I mean, that have just dominated. And how does that play out? I mean, it feels like any Republican will be painted into, you know, not just having your car, you know, having your dog on the top of your car, which is what happened to Romney, which was terrible, but really nasty, nasty stuff. And I don't know if you can fight your way through that. Yeah, you know, it's people are up against an avalanche, I think, of sort of mainstream, not just mainstream media, but sort of every cultural and political institution arrayed against the right. That's the reality that we're living in. Because the left march through the institutions was a world changing success. Right. They were very right. successful. And the, the conceit on the right was that, oh, the market will correct for this imbalance. And frankly, it hasn't. And we stopped paying attention to the institutions and that's been to our detriment. And now we are living in the consequence of that. So I think, you know, we have I think the right has done a very good job, though, in creating its, its own media ecosystem. And to the extent that, you know, we can reach voters through shows like yours and others, I think that's important. Um, and it's also important in, in written areas as well. That's why I write for The Federalist and, and a lot of right leaning media. Um, and I don't, frankly, spend a lot of time worrying about The New York Times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, I think it's but that's why also. The fights over tech are so important because even though we each have our own media ecosystem, the social media landscape is where people get their news now. It's where we speak to each other. It very much is the public square, right? Yes, you can go still, you know, post on a billboard or stand in the park and hand out your literature. That's not reaching at, at all the scale that social media reaches. So the fights to be able to speak into those spaces and be heard, I think, are the fights for the future of politics in this country, frankly. And that's why I'm so heavily invested in talking and writing about it, because I, I really do feel, and I don't think it's overstating it, 
that the future of self-government really hinges on our ability to foster dissent and pluralism and multi multiple points of view on those platforms. You know, otherwise we are literally just speaking in ghettos to ourselves and the nature of free speech as we've always understood it ceases to exist. Well, and, and I'll just finish because I'm out of time, but also um, the, the sophistication with which some of big tech and even big media, I call it the, you know, one is changing your brain through brain science, big tech and big media is brainwashing through images and all. And it, it, they're all overlapping, but some of it is at a certain point you look up and you say that that person's not, you know, not even open because they've been brainwashed and their brain's been changed. I mean, it's, it's to me, it's that scary. But Rachel Bovard, I have to go. Thank you for taking the time. We got a last minute uh, grabbed you to thank you, Rachel Bovard. I'll put up on social media a link to uh, CPI where she's the policy director. Uh, thanks for all your writing. And we appreciate you. Thanks so much for having me. OK, we'll take a break, everybody, and we'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. <laughs> Welcome back to the Pro-America Report. This is Ryan Height, not Ed Martin, as you may have figured out by the sound of my voice. Although some people tell us that we sound similar. I try not to be too offended when that comes up, but I'm just kidding, Ed. If you come back and listen to this, I'm not offended at all. It's a great compliment. But Ed had to jump out here, and I told him I'd uh, hop into the booth and wrap up for him. I just wanted to say something real quick. I'm so grateful to be a part of this, uh, grateful that Ed leads in this show. Typically, I'm on the production side, not out here in front. But it it matters because Ed uh, does a very good job of guiding with a couple of principles. You've heard him talk about our day job at Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. And you know... Phyllis always had a really wonderful way of looking at two things behind every issue. She would get to the values of the issue, the principle, why it mattered, why we should have an opinion, and and then the action, what we should do about it. And I feel like Ed and his guests always do an incredible job putting those two things together to understand the why behind an issue and then how, how we go out and put our uh, grassroots action uh, into work. So I'm very grateful to be a part of it. I'm very grateful for some of the great segments. We obviously uh, didn't have John on today, uh, like Ed mentioned in the first segment. We'll hopefully we'll get that in tomorrow. But we did have a great replay of Rachel Bovard's uh, segment from last week. I think that's very important at this time, especially as the 2024 field shapes up. There is so much for us to discuss and do. So thank you for being here and being a part of this program. Uh, thank you to Ed for leading and getting good guests. And thank you to Noah, uh, who I typically get to help on the back end with production. And uh, thank you so much for visiting and uh, taking part in all the other work that we do over at phyllislafley.com and at proamericareport.com. So go to proamericareport.com, find all the past segments and podcasts and everything else, and we will look forward to seeing you same time, same place tomorrow here on the Pro America Report. Have a good night, everybody. This is the Pro America Report on The Answer San Diego.